Good afternoon. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions, and I welcome you to your Virginia Museum of History and Culture. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited the land where this museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, present, and future. We also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Ann Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. As many of you no doubt know, uh, we are on uh, the verge of reopening after our an almost two-year project to reimagine this museum. Excuse me, this museum. Um, we are in the home stretch, uh, and we'll be reopening to the public on May 14th. Um, I'm assuming that most, if uh, not all of you, are members. Uh, if not, uh, there are many incentives for you to become members. Uh, that includes free parking. 10% uh, off what will be our brand new museum cafe, uh, previews to our exhibitions, free admission to the museum, of course, and daytime lectures like this, as well as discounts on special events and classes. So if you are a member, you've probably already received an invitation uh, about our grand reopening member preview that will be on May 11th. There will be two time slots uh, at 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. And then our grand reopening for the public will be uh, the weekend of May 14, 15, uh, all day from 10 to 5, uh, where we'll have free admission. Uh, there'll be family activities, live music, uh, and food, etc. Our next VMHC lecture will be May 19th at noon, uh, when journalist Charles Clark will be here talking about his biography of George Washington Park Custis. But today we're very pleased to have Jane Turner Sensor with us who is uh, discussing her new biography of Amelie Rives. Rives was well known throughout America, both as the author of a scandalous novel and as a beauty who had married a wealthy heir to New York's Astor family. Only five years earlier, then a 22-year-old living at the family plantation outside Charlottesville, she'd burst upon the literary scene with a short story in the Atlantic Monthly and a poem in the highly regarded Century Illustrated Monthly. In today's talk, Jane will explore how she went from anonymity to a household name. Dr. Jane Turner Sensor is a professor emerita of history at George Mason University specializing in 19th century America and Southern women. Her essays and articles have appeared in numerous journals, including the Journal of Southern History, Comparative Studies in Society and History, American Journal of Legal History, Southern Cultures, and the American Quarterly. In 2017-2018, she served as president of the Southern Historical Association. She is the author of several books, including North Carolina Planters and Their Children, 1800 to 1860, The Reconstruction of White Southern Womanhood, 1865 to 1895, and most recently, the subject of today's talk, The Princess of Albemarle, Amelie Rives, author and celebrity at the Fan de Secla. Please welcome Jane Turner Sensor. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. It's a pleasure to be in Richmond, the city where Amelie Reeves was born almost 160 years ago. And I owe a special thanks to the Virginia Museum for History and Culture for the invitation and to the Valentine Museum, which has allowed me to use so many of the beautiful pictures of Reeves that you will see here today and in my book. 
1891, an article in Lippincott's magazine referred to Amelie Reeves as, quote, the most noted of the younger writers, not only of the South, but of America, end quote. Then only 28 years old, Reeves had already been publishing for five years. Most readers would have immediately recognized her name. Uh, some would have thought of her scandalous bestseller, The Quicker the Dead, while others would have pointed to her short stories and poems. Still others would have recounted numerous anecdotes about her beauty and her headstrong behavior. As the daughter of a railroad executive and granddaughter of a US senator from Virginia, Reeves had a privileged life. She married two times, one a wealthy New Yorker, the second a Russian prince, and she also became the prolific author of over 25 books as well as poems, short stories, and essays. Her experiences provide insight into a changing world for women, especially Southern female authors. Her first interactions with editors prove particularly enlightening about how the gendered code of conduct of the day was changing. These interchanges highlight the difficulties women encountered with literary magazines, even as such journals increasingly sought white Southerners' stories as part of sectional reconciliation. To be sure, for many decades, Southern white women had been authoring books, generally novels focused on courtship and marriage aimed at a female audience. Uh, as the Civil War receded, some women attempted to scale the more exalted heights of Northern publishing. Reeves' entrance there yields insights into barriers and opportunities. In the 1870s, white Southern writers increased their visibility by participating in the local color movement, which featured regional dialect. Among Southerners, Joel Chandler Harris's Uncle Remus stories led the way, and Mary Murphy began publishing her Appalachian stories in the 1870s. Thomas Nelson Page popularized the plantation romance set in antebellum or Civil War period. Faced with a changing world, Americans seemed to have found the allegedly simpler life and close relationships on the plantation particularly alluring. Magazines, because of their growing readership, presented a new lucrative pathway into a literary career. The Atlantic commanded great respect, but Harper's Monthly was the best-selling magazine of the day. Both faced growing competition from the attractive Century Illustrated magazine, as well as others like Appleton's and Lippincott's. Amelie Reeves publicly declared that she had an almost accidental entrance into publishing. Three years after her first story appeared, she told a reporter, I wrote that story in two evenings, sitting up in bed wrote it because I liked to write and because I had the story in my mind. One day, a nice Boston boy, of whom we were all very fond, was visiting at the house and found that story in the library. Nothing would do, but he must take it back to Boston when he went." End quote. He then submitted it to the Atlantic Monthly for, quote, a, a friend. These basic facts, while correct, indicated nothing of the deliberate campaign that Amelie Reeves had waged to break into print. In fact, before she was, quote, discovered, Reeves had tried to publish a novel. In, 18, in 1884, as a 21-year-old, she submitted a manuscript entitled Civilization to the formidable Boston publisher Houghton Mifflin. This was a bold move for a never published author and an especially audacious one for a young Southern lady, perhaps not unpredictably for an unsolicited manuscript from an unknown, it was rejected. In ladylike style, Reeves wrote the publisher, quote, I thank you very much for having read my story, Civilization, and am very sorry to have given you so much trouble for nothing. Of course, I am disappointed. 
but feel convinced that you know much better than I could the worth of the story, end quote. Defending her decision to submit her manuscript, Amelie told the publishing house, quote, I never wrote a novel before, and she added that she wanted to aid her close friend, Ludie Pleasance, who suffered from a disfiguring cleft palate. Relying on the code of ladylike conduct as justification, Amelie ended her letter, quote, I tell you this in order that you may not think me very presumptuous if I try again, end quote. Nevertheless, Reeves found it very difficult to remain sweetly stoic about the rejection. When the publisher's representative mentioned grammatical errors in her novel, Reeves even disclaimed authorship of the novel. Quote, I must further tell you that the young Englishman who really wrote Civilization has permitted me to tell you that I did not write it. I do scribble but am far too in awe of that mighty clan, the publishers, to ever send them anything. I may someday send you something of mine, but I write only very stupid things on the order of essays." End quote. This first unsuccessful attempt at publishing apparently led Reeves to seek alternative pathways. Literary historians have suggested that the most successful 19th century novelist relied on sponsorship, a truth that Amelie intuitively grasped. She needed a sponsor, something difficult to obtain for a Southern woman, yet she had two friends who, if interested in her work, possessed the necessary connections. Both were young, unmarried men, and she resorted to flirtation and flattery to pique their interest. One possible sponsor was already in Reeves' sights. For almost nine months, she had been exchanging letters with Virginia author Thomas Nelson Page, a distant cousin 10 years older than she. These letters were not an attempt to win Page's heart, but part of a carefully crafted campaign that aimed for literary companionship and sponsorship. The letters indicate a young woman trying to fascinate by alternating between sensuality and intellectuality, neither of which were supposed to be part of the Southern Belle's repertoire. Possibly also viewing Page as a literary soulmate Reeves hoped for praise, advice, and most important, that he would bring her writing to the notice of national publishers. When Thomas Nelson Page and Amelie Reeves began to correspond early in 1884, he was practicing law here in Richmond. Uh, more conservative than she, he also took a more traditional view of woman's place. They shared common Piedmont, Virginia gentry ancestors and literary leanings. Both uh, were fascinated by the ancient world, loved Scottish dialect and English heritage stories. Clearly important to Reeves were Page's links to the literary world. In the spring of 1884, when they began to correspond, uh, Marsh Chan, the story that vaulted Page to national fame, had been accepted by the Century magazine. Reeves, in her first reply to Page, blended mystery, exoticism, and drama with caprice. With seeming frankness, she declared that his letter had been fascinating. When he suggested she was a flirt, she pictured herself as a dangerous siren. Quote, as for flirting, dear cuz, you say it is in my nature. And what will you say when I tell you frankly, yes? It is there and very strongly, and I'm afraid very indelibly. Now, what will you say again when I tell you I do not flirt? It is true, quite true, and she boasted she had recently foregone making a conquest. As a bell who signaled her general unavailability, Amelie assured Page that he held a special place in her regard. Quote, do you understand that I speak to you as I would to few people, man or woman? And you must not laugh at me, she chided. You do not know how anxious I am to see your story, she declared, most likely about Marsh Chan. 
I find myself thinking of it sometimes through the long night. You remember you told me of it last summer. As expected of Bell's, Reeves turned to flattery. She claimed to hate modern fiction by Henry James and William Dean Howells and puffed Page's work, quote, but I would tell you that I would rather read something you had written from your heart than even that undeniably beautiful book, The Portrait of a Lady. With sensuous imagery, she predicted Page's literary fame, quote, I am as sure you will be one of our famous writers as I am of the moan of the wind down my chimney. That is a most indisputable fact, as you yourself would say, could you see the little lilac flames from the fresh oak wood spinning around like little salamander coryphees in mauve petticoats. End quote. And she later consoled Page for an unfavorable review by comparing him to Shakespeare. The remainder of Reeves' first letter took her common approach. In entertaining Page, she showed her skill at various literary genres and alluded to her wide reading. At the letter's end, she returned to the theme of attraction. Quote, I wish with all my heart to see you, to know you better, and to love you more, but how is one to behave when one feels, when I in fact feel you are all the time thinking I am trying to flirt with you, and to fascinate not your true friendship, not your honest love, but that berserk, which Kingsley says lurks in every Newfoundland dog, and which I am sure is part and parcel of every man alive." End quote. Here she combined a knowledge of novelist Charles Kingsley's book about the warrior ethic among Anglo-Saxons with a comparison of lust to love, a difference that Page, who preferred women firmly on the pedestal, probably did not wish to consider. When Page asked Reeves in mid-March 1884 to tell about herself, she declared an utter lack of self-knowledge, quote, I fear less of myself than I know of Greek, and of that I know only there is a beginning and an end, which two are alpha and omega. The end with me is not yet, end quote. Using end as a segue, she launched into a disquisition on marriage. They say marriage is the end with women. I do not know, but I hope not. I do not want to be married myself, and yet, and yet, how lonely are the old maids. She then proffered a cameo of her spinster aunt. Quote, my Aunt Ella Reeves is a living warning to me. She is 48. She is very yellow. She wears pale brown stockings that wrinkle and cloth slippers that are out at the toes. She is very good and unbearably disagreeable. She feeds ducks and plays on a melodeon for recreation, end quote. Reeves pointedly ended the portrait. I do not want a husband, but I think a melodeon equally undesirable. To sustain Page's interest, Reeves intently raised contradictions. Her doctor, she wrote, had warned that writing was affecting her health, and she pictured herself as an alluring invalid. Quote, everyone comes to see me. My room is a little court, and a big gilded wicker chair run about with blue ribbons is my throne. End quote. While being delicate was quite ladylike, Reeves also proclaimed her vibrancy and emphasized her body in a distinctly unladylike way, celebrating her driving herself in a first carriage ride since her illness, she wrote, the air was like wine and had a really vinous effect on me. I left and shouted like a big boy, intoxicated with a sense of his big boydom. I drove as fast as ever I could. The wind blew all my curls straight up on end. And so happy was I that I forgot to be vain and pull them back into order." End quote. In contrast to the demureness expected of young Southern women, Reeves took a reference in Page's letter as an opportunity to joke about her own love of bathing. I am a very she Diogenes and live in my tub. 
and as if the nude, as if the image of her nude body in a bathtub was not transgressive enough, she closed the paragraph with a whiff of religious heterodoxy, quote, but cleanliness being next to godliness and I being nearer heaven through that means than any other do persevere from day to day in spite of their jest. Reeves, as she advertised her fascination, saw this relationship as a chance for intellectual exchange as well as literary sponsorship. Even as her first letters to Page showed off her wide reading and ability to write in different dialects and genres, she very slowly pulled him into her world of writing. Only in her third letter did she mention her poetry. Quote, I send you some jingles I made a year ago. I've made better but I am a lazy wench, and these being already copied, I send them to you, end quote. By the summer of 1884, Amelie began to confess literary aspirations. In July, she confided, quote, I too have written a novel this summer, but I fear me it is not just what one would look for from the pen of a girl. Being meat of so muscular an order that even men would have to chew right manfully to digest it. End quote. She then assured Page, quote, yet not do not be thinking that it smacks of immorality. Not so, not so, I swear. And she revealed either, little more. By the spring of 1885, Page had begun to court wealthy and sudden Bruce, and his friendship with Amelie became merely literary. That fall, after the Century Magazine accepted his story, My Lady, Page showed some of Amelie's poems to his editor, Richard Watson Gilter. While Amelie pursued Page as her mentor, she also secured another male friend, William Sigourney Otis, to help toward publication. Will Otis was that, quote, nice Boston boy who showed her story to the editor of Atlantic Monthly. In 1885, he was a 28-year-old lawyer from a prominent family who had graduated from Harvard College and Harvard Law School. Contemporaries considered Will a strikingly handsome man, quote, noted for his geniality, wit, and readiness of repartee, athletic and active, he was a founding editor of the Harvard Lampoon. Will Otis and Amelie Reeves may even have been engaged. At least that is the impression she gave in October 1885 when she told Page, quote, it is all off between Will and myself, and oh, I feel as free as air, end quote. Otis actually scored the first success for Reeves, who told about it in late October 1885. You know, Will Otis took with him to Boston a short story of mine entitled Bro A Brother to Dragons. He took to Houghton Mifflin and Company, and Mr. Aldrich, reader for the Atlantic Monthly, got hold of it. I can't pretend to tell you all the nice things he said. He sent for Will immediately. He thinks I am a man and insisted on my coming to once to Boston. When Will told him that would be impossible, he left and asked if I were in prison. Reeves was ecstatic, marveling, just to think the first short story I ever wrote coming out in the Atlantic. Uh, Thomas Bailey Aldrich was not just a reader for the Atlantic. He was editor at the magazine renowned for its fiction. Aldrich's first reaction to Reeves' story was wildly enthusiastic, and he told her, in her words, quote, he can give me every atom of work that I can possibly do, and he wants every scrap of manuscript I ever wrote. She gratefully gushed to Aldrich, I can never thank you enough, and I will do whatever you think best in regard to it or anything else I ever write. Reeves had thus achieved publication with a story set in 16th century England, and here she differed from most Southern writers who wrote about the South. Reeves' writing is sprightly, though the story is slight. In an era entranced by stories of chivalric heroes, Reeves had a good entry. 
though one more pointed toward the national rather than a southern audience. And while the story featured romance, the resourcefulness and daring of its heroine foreshadowed Reeves' later writings. Over the next few months, Reeves pelted Aldrich with manuscripts as she sought to make the editor her literary guide. She pledged her loyalty, quote, you shall have the firstlings, the very firstlings of my brain and heart, and I will write for no one else in the world if you want me to write for you, end quote. But the next few stories that Reeves sent Aldrich did not please him. At least two of them were eventually published and show that she was writing historical fiction in different locales. Beginning to worry in December that Aldrich merely wanted her to replicate A Brother to Dragons, Amelie complained, quote, I am going to begin at once on A Sister to Dragons to be followed by A Brother-in-Law to Dragons, and these in turn will be the progenitor of a race of little nephews, nieces, and grandchildren to dragons, which shall all be sent in due time. Please, please forgive me if I have been at all impertinent. I would not be that for worlds, end quote. Despite her exasperation, Reeves pleaded for Aldrich's approval and editing. At the same time as she begged for editorial advice, she asked him to visit and subtly indicated her elite Virginia background by describing her home as, quote, one of the very few old Southern homesteads which have remained in the same family for 200 years. End quote. She excused her unconventional request on the grounds of gratitude. Quote, oh, I think I want to wait on you a little and fetch things for you and to know you and to learn the things you like and to earn your approval and the right to your friendship. It isn't too much, is it? End quote. In truth, it seems to have been far too much for the New York England editor, who later labeled her letters Miss Reeves' singular correspondence. Irritated by this author, who was not the young man he expected, Aldrich found her responses to the question of whether her article should appear anonymously or be signed with her own name, initials, or nom de plume to be the very last straw. Even as Amelie exulted over her story's acceptance, she received other good news. Richard Watson Gilder, editor of the century, wished to publish one of her sonnets. Uh, the page had shown him. Suddenly, Amelie was dealing through proxies with two prestigious publishers. For a young woman of 22, this was a heady new experience. In ladylike fashion, Reeves had used go-betweens to gain acceptance of her writings. Yet how far she should go in publicizing her authorship was a problem. Although most Southern female authors in 1885 published under pen names, Amelie first told Aldrich, you may also use my name just as you please. I am perfectly willing to submit everything to your judgment. Yet, um, Reeves responded to Page's news about her poem's acceptance by begging him not to reveal her name to the Century's editor. Quote, I am beginning to get frightfully shy and alarmed and feel like tucking my head in the, the sand of 20 noms de plume like a silly little ostrich. Aldrich knows my name now, but I would so much rather Gilder did not, end quote. Over the next four months, the question of whether Reeves would publish under her own name recurred repeatedly and showed how her ambitions conflicted with proper behavior for Southern women. In November, she suggested a pen name. By early December, Amelie asked Aldrich just to print the story without any name, and later that month, she considered using her initials. The entire matter took a bizarre twist. In late January 1886, both Aldrich and Page received letters allegedly from Reeves, which indicated she would publish under her own name. The letter to Aldrich in part read, quote, I'm just writing to tell you I've told Mr. Gilder of the century to publish my name with some poems of mine that he has, and I do not want you to think it's strange that I've asked you not to publish my name after my short stories and whatever of mine you have, 
end quote. The letter to Page simply requested, quote, my father's asked me to publish my name in the century. If it's not too late, please tell Mr. Gilder just to publish my name, Amelie Reeves. Aldrich apparently believed this letter to him was an admission that Reeves had corresponded with a rival editor. In response, she called the letter a hoax. Quote, there are only two people who write a handwriting identical with mine. One is my sister and one a person, perhaps the only enemy I have, end quote. And Amelie self-righteously asserted, quote, I have had no correspondence with Mr. Gilder. The verses were sent him by Mr. Page, my cousin, end quote. At the same time, Reeves sent a distraught note to Page to stop the publication of her name in the century. She declared, quote, I do not wish my name published. I've said so over and over again. I don't care a rap about the wretched verses, but I wouldn't have Aldrich to think me so childish and double-dealing for anything in the world, end quote. And later that month, Reeves declared that the letter Page had received was a perfect forgery. Was someone forging letters, or did Reeves simply pretend she had not written the letter? One allegedly forged letter that survives presents some stylistic differences and appears slightly more rounded in script than most of Amelie's. If these letters were fraudulent, the most likely culprit was Amelie's younger sister, Gertrude, who had a similar handwriting and would also have known about the acceptance of her sister's story and poem. Uh, but perhaps Amelie actually wrote the letter, then denied it. Her vacillation on the subject of publishing under her name shows an awareness that numerous family members and friends would disapprove. Indeed, her late grandmother, Judith Page Reeves, who had died four years earlier, may have influenced Amelie's literary aspirations as well as her beliefs about how a lady should appear in public. In the 1840s, Judith had published a book under the pseudonym, A Lady of Virginia. Grandmother Reeves, in an unpublished autobiography, also commented on the forms of female self-presentation and criticized the, quote, hoyden, or fast style, and the blue-stocking and eccentric. Amelie must have understood quite well that her provocative letters and expressive conduct fell squarely within her grandmother's definition of a hoyden, and she may have feared that her publications would brand her a blue-stocking. Indeed, Amelie's final comment after the alleged forgery fell back on the language of proper behavior. Quote, I think, Mr. Aldrich, if you ever know me, you will believe me when I say that as a lady, I am incapable of conduct so false and so unladylike. End quote. Despite these brave words, Amelie had already wandered far from the ladylike conduct expected in her grandmother's South. Amelie also showed in these early letters a concern with gender's relation to publication. Her disavowal of her early novel asserted a young Englishman had written it. She also had told Page she wanted to send Gilder a poem, quote, which he thinks a man wrote. Reeves well understood that editors might evaluate poems and articles differently according to the gender of the writer. Even while flouting convention, Reeves was also showing significant worry about propriety and even purity. Back in 1884, after admitting to Page that she was something of a flirt, she added her wish to be called a good true woman, a maiden, most excellent, shining, white, and clear. This is what I would have, even than fame, even than honor. Uh, but she then suggestively added, quote, when you know me better, you will know how dear to me is my ambition. Apparently tiring of Reeves' style, Aldrich rescinded his approval of two of her stories. Possibly he believed her overly emotional and even hysterical. By the time A Brother to Dragons appeared in print in March 1886, listing no author, pseudonym, or initials, Aldrich and his new author were no longer in contact. 
In addition to Reeves, Aldrich also published stories from Tennessean Mary Murphy and African-American author Charles uh, W. Chestnut. The Gooford Grapevine, Chestnut's first story in the Atlantic, was published a year after Reeves' A Brother to Dragons. Chestnut featured Uncle Julius, an elderly freedman who tells stories of slavery to a white observer. While Thomas Nelson Page's African Americans pined for the old regime of slavery, Uncle Julius did not and introduced Northern whites to a world that involved conjure, ghost, and cruel owners. In all these cases, Murphy, Chestnut, and Reeves, Aldrich at first assumed the author was a white man. Reeves used a Harvard man as her proxy, while Murphy submitted her stories under a male pen name. Chestnut, educated in North Carolina but living in Ohio, sent in the Gooford grapevine over the transom, that is, unannounced and unmediated. After the break with Aldrich, Reeves quickly began to submit stories to Richard Watson Gilder at the Century, all with swimmingly that spring of 1886. By mid-March, she was conferring with him over a story and suggested modifying its language because, quote, I wrote it very quickly, as I always write. That May, Amelie visited the Century Magazine's editorial offices where she received, quote, quite an ovation at their headquarters. At that time, the Century had accepted one of Amelie's stories and was considering another. Yet two months later, Gilder no longer wanted Reeves' writings. In July, Reeves, in July, uh, Reeves had a novella, Virginia of Virginia, uh, rejected by Gilder. Some critics believe Virginia of Virginia the best of her early writings. It's a story about an ill-starred relationship between a tenant farmer's daughter, Virginia, and an Englishman who brought a plantation in war-ravaged, the war-ravaged state. Both the plain folk and African Americans speak in dialect, the plebeian white men are boorish and uncouth, and the African Americans, while warm-hearted, speak in malapropisms. Both common whites and even the Englishmen show a casual racism. Yet the heroine, Virginia, rises above her impoverished origins to show kindness and a heroism that illuminate the story. Gilder seems to have rejected Reeves' stories because he believed himself a guardian of morality. According to a literary historian, he excluded from his family magazine whatever he thought would offend the mothers of the nation or corrupt their daughters. The headstrong nature of Reeves' heroine, who's passionately attracted to an upper-class Englishman, probably appeared unseemly to Gilder. That Gilder was an active editor who pushed authors to remove passages that offended him suggests that his objections to Reeves' story was to its general outlines rather than a few specific points that could have been fixed. He may also have disdained Reeves' heroine who overcomes her jealousy and finds atonement and redemption. Moreover, the white and black Southerners in Reeves' stories appear poor, uneducated, and disheveled, far from the inhabitants of harmonious plantations as depicted by writers like Thomas Nelson Page. Possibly, Gilder believed Virginia of Virginia sentimental, immoral, and birthed of socially redeeming messages. Intriguingly enough, this lack of interest in Reeves' writings came as the century promoted Southern authors and Southern themes. As I indicated, Gilder mentored, published, and publicized Thomas Nelson Page. In fact, after accepting Page's March Chan, Gilder worked three years to modify parts that he thought might offend Northern sensibilities. While closing the century's pages to Reeves' uncouth white Southerners, the Northern editors opened them to Page's myth-making. Eventually, Gilder realized the unreconstructed nature of Page's beliefs. In the 1890s, as Page's novels and essays harshly criticized African-Americans' social and political aspirations, the century stopped publishing his work. Although then, 
a, as a best-selling author, Page no longer needed the century. Despite her initial problems, Reeves quickly found new publishers who tolerated her eccentricities and even profited from her unconventionality. By early August 1886, she was in contact with the publishers of Harper's. The following year, Harper's published four of her stories, including Virginia of Virginia and Inja, which chronicled the life of a Virginia farmer's daughter who married a wealthy northerner for social position. The 1891 testimonial to Reeves as, quote, the most noted of the younger writers came from Thomas Nelson Page himself. Elsewhere in that article, Page largely slighted Southern white female authors and gave his highest praise to men, particularly Joel Chandler Harris and other authors like Page himself, of dialect stories. Page did not even mention Mark Twain, often considered to be the greatest 19th century Southern writer, or Charles Chestnut, or the late Sherwood Bonner, a Mississippi woman writer whose novel depicted a romance between an Alabama woman and a Northern abolitionist. The experiences of Amelie Reeves illustrate the limits of the new openness to Southern authors in Northern publications. Northern editors wanted a national literature and were open to white Southern women and African America, but preferred to read about a beautified Old South rather than an impoverished post-war South. Gilder helped Page become the symbol as well as the voice of Southern literature that glorified the slave South and marginalized those who pictured a South outside that mythological realm. By the time of Page's 1891 testimonial, Reeves had made a mercenary marriage and her, move, her writing moved far from Southern topics. Only by birth was she a Southern writer. While some of her later stories and novels used Virginia locales, none dealt with Southern themes. After publishing that first poem under her own name, she always used her name in her publications. Over time, she deviated even further from the traditional behavior expected of the Southern lady. She wrote novels that contained assertive, passionately sensual women. Moreover, she divorced her first husband to pursue another love, and she dared to be a celebrity as well as a novelist. Reeves both inspired and cheered on a younger generation of writers, including Ellen Glasgow. As a young lady, Amelie Reeves wanted to write. As she sought male mentors and sponsors, she portrayed herself as flirtatious but pure and expressed ladylike deference to their superior wisdom. She played on the conventions of the 19th century belle and the southern lady to serve her unladylike aspirations. Notorious in the 1890s, Reeves at her death in 1945 was almost unknown, and her part in the literary, the Southern literary movement of the late 19th century had been largely forgotten. Thank you. What was her uh, educational background? I, I think uh, if I've got the years right, she was born in 1863. Yes. Uh, grew up near Charlottesville. And I wonder if she had any formal education and did she uh, refer to any authors that she felt particularly influenced by? Uh, she was particularly influenced by her grandfather's library at Castle Hill, where she read widely. Um, she largely, her first, um, years were spent in Mobile, Alabama, where her, her father was an executive of the Mobile and Ohio Railroad. She apparently had tutors, and um, it was a quite an unsystematic education. She's largely self-educated, and uh, 
I think that it showed, you know, in she she um, she discovered herself. She educated herself. She had tutors and governesses, but but nothing of the higher education that women were, in fact, at this time beginning to beginning to receive. This is the time of the. Uh, founding of the Seven Sisters Colleges, and uh, when many Southern women's colleges were founded in the antebellum period, were continuing, but she did not. She did not attend them. Thanks. This is a, I'm her husband, so <laughs> I saw, but I've read this manuscript many times. You know, uh, what do you think? Who do you think were the readers of uh, of her works? I mean, who, what was her audience? Who was she talking to? Uh, do you think? I I think different. I think different parts of her writing spoke to different different audiences. Um, the there's a a real fad in. Uh, chivalric stories, stories about knights and ladies in the post-war period. And that's what A Brother to Dragons and some of her earlier uh, stories uh, written in Elizabethan dialect, uh, that's who they might appear you know, appeal to. The Quicker the Dead, I think, appealed to uh, young, young men and young women because it was uh, about a romance uh, pursued with uh, a lot of intensity. Uh, but uh, there's, a, there's a wide reading public in these days, and she is publishing in the magazines which are shared among people of all, all ages, I think, and of even uh, among the uh, better off classes, you know, among, among the literate. So she's trying to break out of the domestic novel, that, that the uh, uh, love and marriage novel that appealed just to women. She's trying to have, I think, a, a wider, wider readership, but it's, it's, uh, it's hard to pin down. she was writing when the myth of the lost cause was emerging was she accepting of that or did she s express suspicion of it uh, she generally ignored it I, I think the only book of hers that seems to have expressed some of uh, to have accepted some of the lost cause came out in 1914 when I uh, in which she depicted a plantation uh, with, with really very high-minded uh, uh, owners. But it's, it's still a post-war plantation. She did not go back to the antebellum period. One of her close friends was a um, Southern writer named Julia Magruder, who grew up in Washington, DC. Magruder e expressed a much greater uh, sort of uh, distaste for uh, uh, the lost cause and and for uh, you know a, a, in one story ridiculed uh, ladies who seemed to belong to something like the uh, United Daughters of the Confederacy, uh, but Reeves by and large uh, ignored the lost cause and uh, I think that her 19th century. Uh, African Americans and whites are not are not stereotypical, but she is quite willing to ridicule ordinary white people and uh, African Americans to use them for comic comic effect. Uh, so, uh, how did her life conclude? Uh, she, after she divorces her very wealthy first husband, she marries a Russian portrait painter, uh, Prince Pierre Trubetskoy, and they live quite happily on, on uh, the plantation Castle Hill. But as their, um, 
as, they're in, as they are nearing the end of their careers in the 1920s and 30s, uh, they're becoming increasingly impoverished. Her books are no longer selling. I think he's not able to, to paint. He dies in 1936. So she has a rather sad um, uh, few, last few years as after the death of her husband as um, she um, is lonely living with her never married sister at Castle Hill, which doesn't have central heating and is sort of falling into disrepair. Um, and, and the war in Europe, given that she had married a, um, a Russian ancestry portrait painter who had grown up in Italy. She, she, she was really saddened by World War II. Uh, she saw Hitler and Mussolini as, as harbingers of barbarism and uh, you know, sort of lights going out all over the world. So as, as her lights going out, she, uh, she, she's a uh, very sad lady. It's, uh... But I, I should add before that, she actually in the early 20th century is a working author, and I think does. Um, she comes back from drug addiction to make a life for herself with the man that she loves in the place that she loves. She loves Abermoral County and, and the Piedmont, and she loves Castle Hill. Um, and uh, uh, that was one source of friction with her first husband, who wanted her to travel the world. She wanted to see Europe, but then she wanted to go back to Castle Hill and remain there. Thank you.